Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mary, Queen of Scots, once a Queen of France by marriage, arrived back in Scotland in August 1561 and married again four years later. It was a catastrophic mistake. Her new husband, Henry Lord Darnley, was stunningly handsome, tall and svelte, but he was also spoilt, narcissistic, vain and violent. He was bisexual. He was described as a great cock chick. And he was promiscuous, but evidently also with his wife, as by late 1565, Mary was pregnant. One of Darnley's lovers, or at least someone we know he would lie in bed with, draw what conclusions thou wilt, was David Rizzio, an Italian musician who had become Mary's private secretary and friend. On the 9th of March, 1566, in Mary's chambers, where she was eating with her friends, 80 men arrived to murder David, each taking their turn to stab him. This blood-drenched moment of history is the subject of Denise Miner's new novel, Rizzio. Late Saturday afternoon, 9th of March, 1566, indoor tennis court, Palace of Holyrood, Edinburgh. Lord Ruthven wanted him killed during this tennis match, but Darnley said no. Lord Darnley wants it done tonight. He wants his wife to witness the murder because David Rizzio is her closest friend, her personal secretary, and she's very pregnant. So Darnley hopes that if she sees him being horribly brutalised, she might miscarry and die in the process. She's the queen. They've been battling over Darnley's demand for equal status since their wedding night. And if she dies and the baby dies, then Darnley's own claim to the throne will be undeniable. They're rivals for the crown. She knew that from the off. He wants it done in front of her. Denise Minor will need no introduction for lovers of true crime. But for the rest of you, let me tell you about this extraordinary writer. She has written 16 novels, several graphic novels, four plays, two radio plays and numerous short stories. Her novel, The Long Drop, won the Gordon Byrne Prize and was described by the Daily Telegraph as a masterpiece by the woman who may be Britain's finest living crime novelist. And now this wonderful crime novelist has turned her attention to a historic true crime. What happened at the Stuart Court in Edinburgh that Saturday in 1566? 
the first thing I have to say is how very much I enjoyed reading this, which I read in one sitting and adored. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And actually, you do concentrate your story. I mean, you could have picked up the story in all sorts of places and you could have put it down in all sorts of places, but nearly all the events of the novel occur between that Saturday, 9th of March, and the Monday, the 11th of March. But how did you decide to confine yourself to that window? Sometimes I write true crime. And one of my problems with true crime is the form has become very set. It has to be chronological. You have to start with a description of the area. It does all come from the executioner's song and from Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. The form is very set. And I thought, what would be really fascinating and what I'm actually interested in is those moments. So I thought if you took a snapshot, because really a lot of historical novelised writing has that great big long form. With Mary Queen of Scots, you could start in 800. You could go back infinitely. It's this infinite regression of narrative causes, which life is chaos. David I does not lead to Mary Queen of Scots. So if you just took a snapshot, it would be much more compelling narratively, I felt. So I did that in a crime novel I wrote called The Long Drop, where instead of looking at why this guy became a serial killer, what I did was I looked at one drunken night where he met the father of women that he'd killed and they went out for a drink. And I thought, that's the night I'm interested in. You could tell the whole story by narrowing the chronological focus to that one night. That's really what I wanted to do there, was just look at one weekend. And I think you could go on forever. And people keep saying, you know, I would love you to write what happened then. But I think it's great that it's a snapshot. And I think it feels like a different thing. And it feels fresh. And I don't want to turn it into an 800-page tome because I don't know why these things happened. I just know that they did. And I don't know what the consequences of that truly were. We can superimpose a narrative arc on these things, but ultimately, if you take a snapshot, that feels almost truer. Yes, and it definitely does feel fresh. And I think there are a couple of ways in which that is emphasised. And one of them is you've got phrases like, here to keep an eye on Darnley for the boss, And the one that made me laugh out loud, tennis is what is wrong with people. He doesn't know how they can live with themselves. They're all sort of things that kind of pull the events of 1566 into the modern day. And is that a deliberate decision to kind of make the past more familiar? It's an odd thing to try and use contemporaneous language. I don't know if you watched a TV show called Deadwood that got cancelled kind of halfway through. You had to watch Deadwood with the subtitles on because everybody spoke in a way that probably was contemporaneous but it's almost incomprehensible to modern ears but the sense of it is the same so I struggled with what was essentially can't and then I thought I'm just going to write it as if it's happening now because so much of the story is internal and so much of the story is subjective and the sense of what they're thinking is the same that idea of having absolute binaries I mean I don't know if you've noticed this but in Poland, in America, in Scotland, in the UK, most votes come down to 52-48 at the moment. And it's not the issue, it's just everyone is thinking in binaries and pro-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, pro-abortion, anti-abortion. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that we're back at this again of not thinking in nuances. No one in political life is allowed to say, I don't know. 
in some ways we've seen all of those things like the social network and all those programs that alert us to the role that social media has played in making us think in binary terms even more and kind of only associate with the people who think the same as us at least intellectually and in some ways we're actually kind of recreating the world of the 16th century the Calvinists hang out with the Calvinists I don't know if you ever listened to The Long View with Jonathan Friedman, but there was a great one about the invention of the internet and social media and how that links back to pamphleteers, which coincides with the Reformation. So a lot of propaganda around... I mean, when the printing press was invented, people thought, this is great. Everyone's going to have access to all the information in the world. But what happened was it was selective information, exactly the same as the internet, And it was selective information published by people who were motivated enough to write five pages on Facebook, motivated enough by people who were prepared to draw the Pope as the whore of Babylon. You know, maybe human beings shouldn't be allowed access to information. I don't know what it is, but it is the same dynamic. It's not really about the means of publishing. It's about information being made available and the sort of information that we're attracted to. I mean, I'm very attracted to mistakes other people make, sartorial or social, or when they say something awful and get cancelled. I love that, but I try not to focus on it because it's just not that good for your head. But I'm not that interested in great big, long, nuanced, balanced tracts. And I think that's probably quite universal. And I think when you're writing historical stuff, what I'm interested in is not the peculiarities but the universality of it, how little people change. Actually, that binary approach, I thought, when you talk about, yeah, and his response to the Reformation, I thought that was a really helpful way of understanding something that, at first glance, when we look back at this period, seems so baffling, that the sort of neighbours turn on neighbours, they suddenly think that they're utterly wrong and completely hell-bound. This is a Calvinist who's got the zeal of a reformed smoker. And I felt you conveyed the appeal of the severity of Calvinism really well. And there's also actually loads of other ideas where you're succinctly conveying complex early modern ideas. Ideas about petty treason or what a pregnant woman saw could change the shape of a child. And I was very impressed by how succinctly you conveyed these things. Obviously, you're going to be coming across a lot of ideas that are unfamiliar to a modern reader. How did you decide, what am I going to praise in this way? What am I going to include or not include? And if you've got any tips on how to do it so brilliantly, that would also be good. Well, I was trying to make it conversational. And to be honest, I thought it was such a mad idea. I didn't think anyone would be terribly interested in it. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write this for my friends. But you know when you read something absolutely amazing and you're desperate to see your pals and you say, do you know they used to? Can you believe that? Those were the bits I wanted to put in. And also the bits that are motivating because they cannot kill a queen. Regicide is not just a mortal sin. But basically, Scotland would be invaded because it is such a crime. I mean, it would be like hanging a baby now. You just couldn't do that. So they have to do something regicide adjacent. To understand the story, you have to know the basic rules. And somebody like Boswell, who has such an interesting character, he was a rapist, but he was also a man of integrity, (laughs) which... You know, for a modern audience, as soon as you know that he raped Mary, Queen of Scots, to get her to marry him, he's cancelled. You can't conceive of him as an interesting, morally complex character. But almost everybody that we know about had raped somebody, whether it was a servant girl that you never heard about, or Pepys was a rapist. Arguably, Dickens was a domestic abuser. 
you know, the, the power differential between men and women was so pronounced at that time. I mean, I did go into a lot of that stuff in the book and had to take it out because it was just too difficult, actually, and I thought it would lose the reader. Yes, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? And but you're absolutely right about this sense that actually patriarchy, which was so entrenched at this time, that some of these dynamics were unavoidable. But one thing you do do, though, is that you do what I found pretty lovely. At one point you talk about those who are stabbing Rizzio as the sort of roll call of Scotland's great men. And then when you talk about the landed aristocracy, you say they're all white between the ages of 20 and 60 and literally entitled. These are the men who fill history books with their squabbles and claims and resentments, the great men of history. Are you impatient with versions of history that have hinged on those great men and not kind of introduced their paradoxes? It's such an interesting time in historical research and discussion, actually, because there are things like the history of emotion. It's not just that we're looking at ordinary people now and trying to recreate their lives, but, you know, my family came from Armagh and basically, I think, had been eating mud for 400 years before they made it all the way to industrial Glasgow. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so I'm really not that interested. It is as if Amanda Holden is the only famous person you're allowed to hear about. Everyone has their niche of people they're quite interested in. I don't think Mary Queen of Scots is knowable, and I don't think any of the royals are knowable because they are so covered in a pall of the prism that most writers are looking through when they're writing about that. So almost as soon as you start reading about the royals, you know whether or not the person supports the notion of a royal family. You know where they think they are in the status rung currently. You know if they're a brown noser or not. You know if they're hoping to get an MBE. I mean, it's so loaded, all that stuff. I'm just not really interested. And I think those stories are quite dreary, actually. And the invisible people, the shadows that move around the rooms, you know, they keep saying Mary Queen of Scots was alone. She was never alone. She was surrounded by people they didn't count or even see. You know, people are bringing firewood. She's got a fire the whole time and they say she was alone. And then she finishes, she can't even eat. So who's bringing the food? Who's taking the food away? Who's cooking the food? She's surrounded by all these invisible ghost people. Those are the people I'm really interested in. Actually, it's not them and not her. It's all of them because that's the whole story. I have a real problem with first-person autobiographical narrative because I think... It's like hearing every ninth note of a song. You're not really hearing what happened. You're hearing about one person's perspective, filtered through looking back, filtered through ego, filtered through self-justification. I really do want to know what happened. I don't just want to know what dress she was wearing that day. That's a really interesting answer. What I thought you were going to say is that what we know about women in the past, we only get through pretty much from what men have written about them and then what men have subsequently written about what those men said. But actually, this is a very interesting thinking about, as you say, the hidden people around her. I think that's really fascinating. The point about the fire, these people who are kind of hidden even at the time. They were invisible at the times. They're just not even being noted down. I think that the way we tell stories about the royals, it makes it an individuated narrative and actually it's a collective narrative. So you're looking at the hundred people who worked in the kitchen as well as Henry VIII. That's really the story that I'm interested in. And I think those are untold stories very often. I don't mean upstairs, downstairs. I just mean 
These were collective events and we talk about them as if Henry VIII or Mary Queen of Scots were hurtling through the universe without being touched by other people or without noticing that someone was limping today when they brought the firewood or the way we were all affected by all the people around us. And it just seems like a missed narrative opportunity. Mm, that's really interesting. And one of the great debates about Henry VIII has always been to what extent it is he who is making decisions or it's being made by people around him. I guess what you're saying is it's a false question, right? That none of us exist without the influences of others. Yeah, no one exists in a vacuum and people don't make decisions in a vacuum and people don't emotionally exist in a vacuum. And it's really interesting, you know, the CIA really, really supported writing that was first person. Bonner Sanders wrote a book about the CIA promoting abstract expressionism all over the world as a means of artistic colonialism during the Cold War. And they also really, really favoured one particular writing school, which very much favoured first person experiential writing because it fits in so much with a capitalist narrative that you are alone and that the world is affected by you and you have every opportunity rather than most people don't have enough and they get the job they can get they love the people that they meet we're not all JFK even he was kind of controlled by his dad looking at history as a much more collective experience and decision making as much more collective and less of an agenda. In the book, Lady Huntley has every reason to not help Mary Queen of Scots. She's one of the ladies in waiting. And her husband had died during an uprising against Mary, had a heart attack. And Mary had his dead body taxidermied and then put on trial in the Scottish Parliament. And he was found guilty of treason. And Lady Huntley was divested of all her goods which were then brought to the Palace of Holyrood. So she was walking past them every day. She was probably cleaning her own plate now. And she coached Mary into faking a miscarriage so that she could survive and get away. And she passed notes backwards and forwards to her son and Boswell to help her escape. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, she might have wanted her son to do well, but nobody knew that he was in league with Mary. They just knew that he'd gone. But she's showing compassion. Now, within that individuated, everyone's after money or power, you can't even tell that story. That's why she's always missing from the narrative. But if you think about it collectively and as an emotional situation and as a sisterly situation, you can allow for those things that history just overlooks because it doesn't make any sense. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I loved that female relationship was at the heart of this novel. It was just so tender and so paradoxical and so moving as a result. The other thing I guess I wanted to say that I thought was done really well was conveying a sense of atmosphere, whether it's sort of Edinburgh, everyone descending on it, or darkness. There's a moment where in the action all the candles are knocked to the ground and the only illumination comes from the red glow of the fire. And I recently moved to a village that doesn't have streetlights. And so on a night when the moon is not full, the darkness is profound. And it's made me really think differently about the past. But again, I was thinking, you know, how did you find these details or choose this angle that so powerfully conveys living in the period? Well, they're really well documented. Lord Ruthven wrote a 10-page, excuse me, I mean, it's just full of lies, but 10 days afterwards. And it was five pages, and that's available on the internet. It's not hard to get hold of at all, but it's very difficult to read because that is in contemporaneous language. And Mary Queen of Scots wrote letters about what happened, and a lot of people talked about it because there was an inquiry into what had happened. And those tiny details, I mean, you must love this when you're reading contemporaneous accounts and someone says something like, you know, the dog came running in with a dead rabbit, and the rabbit was bleeding all over. It's just those visceral moments that really stick in your head. And when I'm researching something that really happened, what I like to do is read everything and then go away and think about the bits that really stuck in my head. And that is the joy of being a novelist, is you can hone in just on those really visceral images when you can see it in your head and it's just like opening the side of a box and describing what you can see so you can parse out the other stuff because you don't have to show that action follows cause if it's novelized you can just get straight to the meat of it that's fascinating i love that was your approach to researching this basically the one that you've used whenever you've written true crime 
Yeah, just read absolutely everything. Go to the place. That's really important. But usually when I go to the place, I have to imagine what it was like. But it's Hollywood Palace and it's Edinburgh. You don't have to imagine it. So Edinburgh that weekend was just chocker with people because Parliament was meeting. So the lords and ladies all around Scotland had all come to Edinburgh. It was crammed full of them and they had all brought their entourages and their milking cows and all their servants. But of course, if you've ever been to Edinburgh for the festival, you know, there's no mystery to what that would be like because, you know, we've all been there. And I remember once I went through and we were trying to find somewhere to stay the night and a man who'd advertised that he had somewhere to stay showed us into a room with six single beds in it. And we're like, we're not murderers, we're not staying here. You know, but that must have been what it was like and people sleeping on stone floors and in closes. And they were given two hours notice or three hours notice on the Sunday after the coup and they all had to get out and Edinburgh just emptied you know, like pulling a plug on a bath. I mean, you can imagine all of that stuff, you know. So it's just the same technique, really, as you're kind of imagining it, you know. And you were saying about what a novelist can do. And obviously, one particular prerogative of the novelist is that look at interiority, although I really take your point about not writing from a first-person perspective. But you're kind of inventing interiority, but on the basis of fact, like so thinking about Rizzio's yearning for Darnley, for example. Where do you kind of feel the line is between being factual and fictionalising in historical fiction? I think you have to be prepared to just be cheeky and just say, this makes sense or wouldn't it be great if... But I mean, I think they did sleep together and Rizzio never had a woman that we know and he was very good friends with Mary. He was famous for his dress. He was obviously quite vain. He was desperate to get out of Italy. Why you would want to get out of Italy? He did a lot of very classic gay in a very homophobic culture type of things. And he was good looking and he was famously well groomed and he was a bit of an influencer really because he brought a lot of Savanese fashions with him. Did people have a sexuality in the same sense that they do now? I don't think so. I think gay is very much an identity that formed when people started to be oppressed for fancying people of the same gender. I mean, I do think it's productive as well, but at the same time, I do think that being in a socially subservient position, you maybe didn't get a chance to choose your sexual partners always if you're living at that kind of high level. But Darnley was certainly, to use a technical term, putting it about. (laughs) (laughs) He would shag anybody and he was going to brothels and stuff like that. Now, the idea that he would have this very handsome, well-turned-out Italian guy sleeping next to him in a bed and not try and cop a feel strikes me as unlikely. Yes, I think there's so many interesting things you've said there about whether sexuality was about identity or behaviour in the past and whether they thought about it at all in the same way. It's not clear to me that they did, really. It's such a new category and it is predicated on things being illegal and it is about post-Reformation construction. Sodomy was illegal and it was actionable, but actually sodomy wasn't always just a term for homosexuality because more heterosexual couples practice sodomy gay people ever did. So that is something that you do see heterosexual couples and you do see men being prosecuted for. So I think, you know, it's very difficult to get our heads around that. In fact, actually, it could be that sodomy, which we read as being something meaning homosexuality, is actually about people having non-reproductive sex. And you also put the novel in the present tense and you talk about things happening right now. 
and at this very moment and that produces some lovely pictures at one point you say she doesn't know that right now half the nobles of scotland are downstairs silently storming her palace why the present tense it's such a great technique it's very difficult to sustain, but it's a great technique to put the reader in the moment. And actually, when you look at it, if you spend far too much time editing things the way I do, putting things in the past tense does require a lot of words. I mean, it's much more lumpen. So if it's the present tense, your sentences are much thinner. So your eye slides across the page without really noticing and it just creates a real galloping tension within me as a reader and hopefully within people who are reading it. So it's about clarity of thought and it's also about immediacy of narrative. And I think when something's that far in the past, you can just put it in present tense and it just makes it more compelling of a read. It doesn't make it any less true. You're not saying, you know, we're living in a multiverse and this is happening now. But I think it has those effects on readers. The sentence structure is always much, much cleaner in present tense. But there's also a sense in which it created, if not maybe in multiverse, but a sense of the contingency of the past. Like you talk one point about a hanging moment in history, and I just love that phrase. You talk about a mean man of history, snatching history from the hands of the great. And I got a sense that it gave much more of a sense of the story could go either way, the suspense of the moment. Well, it is. It's a very difficult thing in telling a story that's well known. If you're telling true crime... Obviously, most people picking up the book will say, oh, I know what happened to Ted Bundy. How do you make that immediate? How do you make that compelling? How do you make it feel as if there are stakes? And if it is in the past tense, it's very difficult to feel that there are stakes because it's all decided. Actually, it's not decided. A lot of the questions that were being addressed by that coup are still current. So in Scotland at the moment, people are talking about should we become independent and turn our face to Europe and join the EU? Should we remain part of Britain? Should we join with England? Those are very, very current questions. But every generation faces them and every generation thinks this is the only time this question has been asked. And actually, these are very ancient, irresolvable, almost philosophical questions. The same thing's happening with Brexit. You know, British people are saying, should we look to the Americas? Should we look to Europe? The special relationship with America, that is a very ancient question. Should we close our borders? Should we open our borders? And they haven't been resolved yet. I mean, sometimes this group of people win, but it doesn't resolve the central question, which is, can you inhabit a multiplicity of identities rather than a single monolithic identity? And I think that's absolutely fascinating. Every time it comes to a vote, bad things happen. It's a philosophical question being asked with a binary response, and it's really interesting. So there's a sense of, as you said, some of the universality of some of these ideas. And actually, one point that comes up is you talk about the way that Mary remembers the event. And you say something like, people say she's making these things up to gain sympathy. And this is a charge that's levelled by powerful men at victims since time immemorial. And I made me wonder, do you think that Mary was a victim? I think Mary was a victim. She was a real victim of circumstance. And I think she came to the job of the Queen of Scotland in good faith. She was a young woman. My reading over is at this particular point, she's quite naive and she's not bitter and she doesn't suspect the worst of people the way you do in your early 20s, you know. And I think she changed maybe later, but I do think she is a victim. And the misogyny in Scotland 
until quite recently, really, you could stand a spoon up in it. I mean, shortly before this, John Knox has published a pamphlet called The First Trumpet Call Against This Monstrous Regiment of Women, saying women should not be on the throne. And that is a big part of Calvinism. Not everywhere. Misogyny isn't a central tenet of Calvinism the world over. But in Scotland, it really, really was. And I think they despised her for being Catholic, being female, being young and enjoying her physicality. I think she was victimised really badly and I don't think she had any idea of the atmosphere of spite and misogyny that she was coming into. Yes. The extraordinary thing about this episode, though, the complicity of Rizzio being murdered so brutally and extravagantly so that everybody is in on it... But it's by contract. (laughs) It's so extraordinary to me that something that seems so primitive is done in such a modern legalistic way. I mean, that seems such a jarring paradox, doesn't it? Not in Scotland. I'm a Scottish lawyer. That's the only part of the coup that I approve of. (laughs) Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew what they were getting. Everybody knew what the codicils were if certain eventualities happened. But they felt very safe. That was the point, was they owned the law and they knew the law. They were all lawyers and they all had lawyers working for them. And they felt as long as they were within the law, they did not feel unjustified. The January the 6th coup in the States, one of the fascinating things about the documentaries being made about it now is they all think they were right and they thought they were right at the time. You know, when you look back at history and you look at appalling things that have been done, like the My Lai Massacre and... You know, just all through history, people thought they were right. The Nazis thought they were right. They didn't think, oh, no, I'm working at Auschwitz. They thought somebody's got to do this job because Jews are going to kill everybody. That's where we have to address those things as early on, you know. They didn't think they were the bad guys. And that's why they drew up all those contracts and got everybody to sign them. And you can still see them and they have all the seals and signatures of everybody on the bottom. So that's another universal. And I think that's absolutely right. I think throughout history, I think everyone has always thought that they were doing the right thing, that what they're doing is totally justified. Are you going to do this again? I hope you are. Like, not necessarily Mary Queen of Scots, but are you going to take a moment of the past and think about it in this way? I am already thinking about it. And I'm thinking about Savonarola, which I think is incredibly theatrical. And like that, it's one of those muddy moments in history that people who know about are like, oh my God, do you know what happened? And it's got such a great climax. So I'm kind of thinking about that. But there were a lot of calls and a few publishers approached us to write basically Rizzio again, but like three weeks later. I don't know if I want to do that because I just think it's nice to have limited things. It's nice to have things that are just, boom, that's it, mic drop, walk away. But I do love episodic history and I do love novelised history And I think not just as a way of understanding the past, but very much as a way of understanding the present, which I think is what really interesting historical writing does. I'm sure you think that too, because of your work. I'd be interested if you did Darnley's murder, because you throw to it at the end. That could be a sequel. I don't know. We'll see. I'm trying to keep an open mind and not be proud about it and not think it's quite nice to do something special and walk away because so many people have really responded well to the book and it's unexpected and it's odd and it's the start of a series. So there are going to be a series of, and I don't want to tread on that because Jenny Fagan is doing The Witch Trials and Alan Warner is doing Bonnie Prince Charlie and I don't sort of want to tread on that, but maybe as a separate side issue. But that is high comedy, Darnley's murder, apart from the fact that people die. It is Tommy Cooper-esque. 
It's like your grand trying to work a video in 1989. It's like they had gunpowder, but they didn't really know what it did. And they ended up blowing his body across Edinburgh. And it's not as sad as it sounds because he was a shit. <laughs> okay, one last question for you. There's a detail I absolutely loved in this, which is when you talk about the old method of getting a nobleman in armour up from his chair. Did you find this or did you invent this? Either is brilliant. That I invented. We used to do that with my papa. Stand on his feet and hold his hands and then you just use your weight to lift him up. But I thought pages must have done that. And the armour that Ruthven is wearing is Don Quixote style armour. It's all bits of things, which is what they must have worn. You know, the armour that you see in old houses, they didn't wear full sets. They had like bits of metal strapped on places they thought they might get hurt. So that invented, but I just thought, yeah, that probably makes it. I'm really glad that you like that because I did think at the time, yeah, that probably is right, but I don't really know if it is right. I don't know either, but I loved it. Actually, I really did love this book and I love talking to you about it. I feel like I want to talk to you for many hours longer about how you write because it's so interesting. But also, I am going to spend lots of time in your company virtually with your books in my hands because I really want to read everything you've written now about anything because I just sort of feel this extraordinary vividness of your prose and your approach and the cleanness of it and you know I managed to sit down and read all 118 pages in one sitting so I'll be reading your others as quickly I imagine I'm delighted thank you for having me thank you so very much for your support for not just the Tudors please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts I'd be delighted to read them And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.